Welcome to JFK in the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 147. Look, I really appreciate you sticking with me on this one. This has been one heck of a wander, but we're really close to finishing up the Cuba series. Today, in our episode, we address the rest of the actual invasion that occurred at the Bay of Pigs. And then in episode 148, finally, we'll tell that crazy mafia assassination plot against Castro that involved Johnny Roselli and others. And then we'll be ready to get back on the plane and go back to the States, where we'll join Jim Garrison for a drink in New Orleans as he gets ready to prosecute the Clay Shaw trial. Today's episode is about an hour and a half long. I've made a decision not to break it up anymore. I was exhausted by the time we finished it. You will be too, I think. And you may have to absorb it in small chunks at a time. It's nothing like the exhaustion that those men must have experienced beginning on the few days in April 1961 and lasting for many of them during their incarceration over the next 18 months. Yes, Life truly is a game of inches. Either play to win, or you're likely to lose. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 147 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. We are on our way to Cuba. Now that we've given you all those details back in episode 146, we're going to toggle back and forth now a little bit between both the air battle and the events that took place with the landing force, attempting to tell the story now as the invasion unfolded. The first event of note happened on April 15th, and it was a strictly Cuban and a strictly Castro-directed event in anticipation of the invasion. The Cuban National Police started the process of arresting thousands of suspected anti-revolutionary individuals and detaining them in provisional locations such as the Karl Marx Theater, the moat of Fortaleza de la Cabana, and the Principe Castle, all in Havana and then the baseball park as well in Matanzas. In total, somewhere between 20,000 and 100,000 people would be arrested. All of this was a step that Castro took in anticipation of the potential uprising within Cuba that might occur and be triggered by the impending CIA-led exile invasion. Even Castro knew that there was opposition to the communist turn that was happening, and he needed an insurance policy. And this is what he did to get it. Those that might rise up had already left the island, and those that hadn't but were thinking about it were temporarily jailed. Preceding the invasion, there were several diversionary events engaged in by the CIA and counter-revolutionary Cubans. 
These were all designed to either deceive Castro and his armed forces on just where the invasion landing was to take place, or were other diversionary events within Cuba that were designed to distract the main Cuban forces, distract them right around the time of the invasion. The CIA, with the backing of the Pentagon, had originally requested permission to produce sonic booms over Havana on April 14th to create some confusion. This tactic was a form of psychological warfare that had proven successful in the overthrow of Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala in 1954. The point was to create confusion in Havana and have it be a distraction to Castro. And if they could break all the windows in town, that certainly would be a distraction. Well, the request was denied, however, since American officials thought such a tactic would be too obvious a sign of involvement by the United States. Around this time, Cuba's state security agents also arrested an internal resistance group made up of 15 persons, and it was led by a North American, Howard Frederick Anderson. The agents discovered eight tons of hidden arms consisting of 40 cases of rifles, 12 cases of automatic weapons, 18 cases of Thompson machine guns, as well as mortars and plastic explosives, all intended for use in the uprising. The invasion date was now around the corner. During the night of April 14th-15th, a diversionary landing was planned near Baracoa in the Oriente province. There were 165 or so Cuban exiles involved, and they were commanded by Eugenio Nino Diaz. Their mother's ship, named La Playa or Santa Ana, had sailed from Key West under a Costa Rican flag. In another diversionary move, several U.S. Navy destroyers were stationed offshore near Guantanamo Bay to give the appearance of an impending invasion fleet that might invade somewhere in the vicinity. The exiles' reconnaissance boats turned back to the ship after their crews detected activities by Cuban militia forces along the coastline. You see, Castro's Cuban forces, sensing that something was up in the area, proceeded at daybreak to launch a reconnaissance sortie over the Baracoa area, and the plane was launched from a nearby airfield. They sent up one of the Cuban Air Force Lockheed T-33 jets, but for some reason, the Cuban aircraft crashed fatally into the sea while on the reconnaissance mission. The CIA used the accident to their advantage, though. A day or two later, on April 17th, they would declare, rather falsely, that the pilot was a defector from the Cuban Air Force. This story was among all other disinformation that was being circulated, particularly in Miami. On the night of April 16th, the Nino Diaz group failed in a second attempted diversionary landing at a different location, but still near Baracoa. And on that same night, individuals staged an armed uprising at Las Delicas Estate in La Villas, with only four people surviving. Now, let's turn back to the air attacks for a minute. Remember, the plan for the CIA air campaign was to start with a preemptive attack an attack that would destroy or completely disable all 16 of Castro's aircraft, completely disable Castro's ability to attack the men and the ships as they landed and established the beachhead. 
Many things went amiss here. Probably the first was the fact that the CIA did not anticipate that Castro had any jets, and yet he did. He had a number of T-33 jets among the 16 planes, and jets change the calculus when they are outfitted with weapons and they are in the air and flying circles around antiquated B-26 bombers. You'll hear more of that as the events unfold. But two days before D-Day, on April 15th, there was more to be concerned about. Even though there was American firepower waiting in the wings, the air fight, exiles against Castro, totaled 16 planes versus 16 planes. Only Castro was the only one with any jets in his pocket. So Castro had the advantage right from the start an advantage that needed to be squashed by the preemptive strikes. And to make it worse, as part of all the retrofitting that each of the CIA's B-26 bombers underwent, (laughs) all the tail guns on those planes were removed. So, the result was that a fast T-33 or other plane that was able to maneuver and get into position behind the CIA planes would have a target that was unable to shoot back. A terrible tactical mistake in preparation. But it was a weight consideration, actually, as the trade-off was the mounting of eight 50 caliber machine guns in the nose of each of these B-26 Cuban Expeditionary Force planes, and the addition of some forward rocketry as well. And, of course, additional gas tanks with sufficient capacity to ensure that the plane and its crew could make the round trip back from Nicaragua to Cuba. That trade-off, it was a necessary evil, meant that something had to go, and that contributed to the removal of the tail guns. And as I said, and it's worth repeating, that proved to be problematic in the fight. And just when things were not looking too good, President Kennedy made it even worse. Sensing that sending 16 planes was just too much firepower, too much noise in the realm of plausible deniability, the mission was cut in half. On April 14th, the president ordered a reduction in the use of air power. Only eight planes now would go on the original search and destroy mission, the mission that was scheduled for the next day. The eight that would go would have to do the job and do it well and destroy the existing Air Force. Otherwise, things were going to get dicey. This decision, to say the least, was monumental, and it would be compounded later after the first preemptive attacks. And I'll explain what I mean in a moment about the compounding problems after we describe the preemptive attacks themselves. The pilots and navigators left at about 3 a.m. in the morning from Nicaragua, It was a three-hour flight or so to get to Cuba. And in the early morning hours at about 6 o'clock a.m. Cuban local time, these eight B-26B invader bombers in three groups simultaneously attacked three Cuban airfields. The first at San Antonio de los Baños and at Ciudad Libertad, formerly named Campo Colombia, with both of these first two locations very near Havana, plus a third location, the Antonio Maceo International Airport at Santiago de Cuba. As you recall, Santiago is on the southeast side of the island, 
these three locations were assumed to be the main locations of the major aircraft inventories of the FAR, or Cuban Air Force. All the CIA B-26s were nicely painted over with the false flag markings of the FAR. Yes, the flag markings of the Cuban Air Force. They had flown from Puerto Cabezas in Nicaragua, and the eight planes were crewed by exiled Cuban pilots and navigators of the self-styled Fuerza Aérea de Liberación, or FAL. The purpose of the action, codenamed Operation Puma, was to destroy most or all of the armed aircraft of the FAR in preparation for the main invasion. There was much damage inflicted by this initial seek-and-destroy mission. It was partially successful, but it was not enough. At Santiago, two CIA B-26s destroyed a C-47 transport. A PBY Catalina flying boat, two Cuban B-26s, and a civilian Douglas DC-3 were also destroyed, plus various other civilian aircraft. At San Antonio, one of the bases near Havana, three CIA B-26s flew the mission there, and they destroyed three FAR B-26s. And they also destroyed one Hawker Sea Fury, and they even downed one T-33 jet. As I mentioned earlier, each of the CIA's B-26s had been retrofitted with additional gas tanks. Each one of those tanks held an additional 250 gallons and was mounted underneath the wings. They were there to store additional fuel that was needed for the mission given the round-trip flight distances between Nicaragua and Cuba. On one of the three B-26s flying the San Antonio mission, the supplemental tank failed to activate, and the tank itself had to be jettisoned, forcing the B-26 to divert its flight plan to a closer landing spot. In this case, it turned out to be the island of Grand Cayman, which is a part of the British Commonwealth, and it's located south of Cuba and somewhat in the flight path back to Nicaragua. When the aircraft landed in the Caymans, it was immediately seized by the UK authorities, as they were very concerned that the Cayman Islands might be perceived as a launch site for the invasion. And the British wanted no part in the whole scheme of this thing. At Ciudad Libertad, the second site that was near Havana, the mission was not so successful. The three CIA B-26 planes attacked and destroyed only non-operational aircraft there including two Republic P-47 Thunderbolts. One of the CIA B-26s was damaged by anti-aircraft fire and had to be ditched about 50 kilometers or something like 30 or 31 miles north of Cuba. The crew on that B-26 was lost at sea. Its companion B-26 was also damaged, and that plane managed to continue north, and it landed at Boca Chica Airfield in the Florida Keys. The crew, Jose Crespo and Lorenzo Perez Lorenzo, were granted political asylum upon landing. And, subsequently, these two men would get right back on the pony. They would make their way back to Nicaragua the next day after traveling back to North Miami and utilizing the daily CIA C-54 flight from Opalaca Airport back to Puerto Cabezas Airport. Their B-26 
purposely numbered 933 was the same as at least two other B-26s that day. And the repetition in the numbering was done deliberately for disinformation purposes. Sadly, after these missions were completed on April 15th, the pilots and their crew reported highly optimistic statistics on how well they had done that day. That is, in terms of the planes that had been destroyed in Castro's Air Force. Based on their observations, it was estimated that approximately 85% of the Cuban Air Force had been destroyed by the three runs. Unfortunately, this was incorrect. In fact, less than half of the available planes had been taken out of service. The unfortunate effect of these conclusions, when communicated upward in the chain of command, was a decision made at the very highest level, namely President Kennedy. And it was a decision to cancel the Invasion Day airstrikes. It was a grave mistake. More in a minute on that. Now, let's turn our attention back to the deception flight that I mentioned just briefly earlier in the episode. About 90 minutes after the eight B-26s had taken off from Puerto Cabezas to attack the three Cuban airfields, another B-26 departed on a deception flight that took it close to Cuba, but then headed north towards Florida. Like the three bomber groups that were actually carrying out true seek-and-destroy missions, this B-26 carried false FAR markings and the same number 933 as painted on at least two of the other B-26s that day. Before departure, the cowling from one of the aircraft's two engines was removed by CIA personnel, fired upon with a gun, then reinstalled to give the false appearance that the aircraft had taken ground fire at some point during its flight. At a safe distance north of Cuba, the pilot feathered the engine and with the pre-installed bullet holes in the cowling, radioed a mayday call and requested immediate permission to land at Miami International Airport at about 7 a.m. that morning. He landed and taxied to the military area of the airport near an Air Force C-47, and he was met by several government cars. The pilot was Mario Zuniga, formerly of the FAEC, or Cuban Air Force under Batista. And after landing, he masqueraded as Juan Garcia, and he publicly claimed that three colleagues had also defected from the FAR. He would claim that they carried out the attack against Castro's airfields, and after being hit by anti-aircraft fire and low on fuel, they flew to the United States. The next day, he was granted political asylum, and that night, he too returned to Puerto Cabezas via Opalaca ready to fly more sorties in the days to come. Initially, this deception operation seemed to work, but the trained eye of reporters who got a look at the plane helped to unravel things pretty quickly. You see, there were two very suspicious things. First, it did not appear as if the machine guns mounted in the front of the plane had been fired. How a trained reporter's eye identified that, I have no idea but they did. And second, these CIA versions of the B-26s were slightly different in their design than the ones being used by the Cuban Air Force. You see, the CIA version had a solid metal nose cone in front of the cockpit, 
and the Cuban versions did not. They had a transparent plastic cone. I must confess, in pictures I've seen side by side, the difference is quite obvious. Nevertheless, the deception was at least a momentary success in convincing much of the world media that the attacks on the FAR bases were the work of an internal anti-communist faction and did not involve outside actors. But it didn't fool everybody. On reading the American Wire Service accounts of the defection, Fidel Castro commented that even Hollywood would not try to film such a story. Later that morning at the United Nations, at about 10.30 a.m. on the 15th, Cuban Foreign Minister Raul Roa accused the U.S. of aggressive air attacks against Cuba. Only days earlier, the CIA had unsuccessfully attempted to entice Raul Roa into defecting. In response to Roa's accusations before the U.N., United States Ambassador to the United Nations, Adlai Stevenson, stated that U.S. armed forces would not, under any conditions, intervene in Cuba and that the U.S. would do everything in its power to ensure that no U.S. citizens would participate in actions against Cuba. He also stated that the Cuban defectors had carried out the attacks that day and he presented a UPI wire photo of Zuniga's B-26 in Cuban markings at the Miami airport. Stevenson was later embarrassed to realize that the CIA had lied to him. Castro would continue his radio messages and tirades, announcing later that day that the airstrikes on the airports were by the U.S. and that the Cuban delegation at the United Nations had received instructions to accuse directly the government of the United States as they are the ones to blame for this aggression against Cuba. Castro announced that all militia and army units have been mobilized and placed on a state of alert. He would say, if this air attack is the prelude to an invasion, the country is ready to struggle and will resist and destroy with an iron hand whatever force tries to land in our country. At about midday on the 16th, President Kennedy finally and formally approved the landing plan, and the word is then passed to all the commanders in the operation. All the ships at that point were on a separate course toward the objective area. The ships converged at about 5.30 that afternoon, approximately 40 miles off the coast. As the exile force got a glimpse of the U.S. destroyers for the first time, and when they saw them, they would shout and holler in jubilation. It was a sign that, at least they thought, that the U.S. was right there with them. The Cuban Expeditionary Force ships would go the rest of the way from there, and so then they proceeded slowly toward the Cuban coast. And finally, between 11 p.m. that night and midnight, at a point about 5,000 yards from Blue Beach, the landing crafts aboard the San Marcos are transferred to Cuban crews. Blue Beach is the code name for one of the two beach landing sites, and Blue Beach is the closest, located close to the mouth of the bay, just east and very near the city of Garan, and close to the airstrip. An airstrip that would be critical to overtake and secure 
and then be used as a landing location for planes that would subsequently be coming in and out, or so it was in theory. That night, Radio Swan repeated its broadcasts of a message which David Atlee Phillips and Howard Hunt had composed. It was a message to give the appearance that the station was activating resistance groups in Cuba. For those of you that are JFK conspiracy theorists and have read the book entitled The Fish is Red, this is where the book title came from. In the now semi-famous quote, Alert! Alert! Look well at the rainbow. The fish will rise very soon. Chico is in the house. Visit him. The sky is blue. Place notice in the tree. The tree is green and brown. The letters arrived well. The letters are white. The fish will not take much time to rise. And, of course, the last line would finish it off with, The fish is red. Howard Hunt later wrote that these were nonsense messages. We couched it in terms that could conceivably confuse and misdirect Castro's G2, he would say. No additional airstrikes occurred on April 16th, which was the day after the original Seek and Destroy mission. The 16th was the day before the invasion, an invasion that would happen later that night, but continue the offload well into the early morning hours of the 17th. But a U.S. U-2 spy plane flying reconnaissance high above the skies of Cuba on the 16th would reveal that, in fact, the pilots' observations from the previous day about the extent of the destruction in the initial B-26 seek-and-destroy missions to bomb Castro's Air Force, well, they were, in fact, dead wrong. The pilots and navigators had clearly been overenthusiastic in their estimates. And, as a result of the updated information from the U-2 flight, there was a hurried attempt to reorganize an additional pre-invasion strike on the remaining planes in Castro's Air Force. But it was, in a sense, too late. After the initial attacks and expecting further attempts to destroy his small air force, Castro ordered his pilots to sleep under the wings of the planes so that they would be ready to take off immediately. And here is the rest of the sentence fragment when completing the the fill-in-the-blank question. It's probably on your mind as well. Just when you thought it couldn't get any worse as it related to the air missions, before that latest U-2 reconnaissance was digested and late on the night of April 16th, President Kennedy, ostensibly as a result of the jubilant report back related to the initial air missions, ordered the cancellation of further airfield strikes, the ones that were planned for early dawn on April 17th, the planned date of the amphibious invasion. This decision by Kennedy was based on false information, of course, that was ultimately pushed up the chain. But it was a decision to strictly continue to advance the idea of plausible deniability of any direct U.S. involvement. And we all know that the decision was the latest in a tragic set of missteps. And it would prove possibly to be the nail in the coffin. As we said a minute ago, on that same night of April 16th, the CIA Brigade 2506 invasion fleet, the Brigadistas, converged on Rendezvous Point Zulu, 40 miles south of the coast of Cuba. 
that same night and into the early morning hours of April 17th, a mock diversionary landing was also organized by CIA operatives near Bahia Honda in the Pinar del Rio province of Cuba, obviously designed as another deception event. A flotilla containing equipment that broadcast sounds and other effects of a shipborne invasion landing provided the source of Cuban reports that briefly lured Fidel Castro away from the Bay of Pigs battlefront area. Meanwhile, back in Washington at about 9.30 p.m., McGeorge Bundy telephoned General Cabell at the CIA to tell him that the dawn airstrikes the following morning should not be launched until planes can conduct them from a strip within the beachhead. Bundy indicates that any further consultation with regard to this matter should be with the Secretary of State. General Cabell and Richard Bissell go to Secretary Rusk's office at about 10.15 p.m. that night, and Rusk tells them he had just been talking to the president on the phone and recommended that the morning airstrikes scheduled for D-Day should be canceled, and the president had agreed. This point obviously underscores the impact of the advice that the president got from Dean Rusk. Cabell and Bissell protest, arguing that the ships as well as the landings will be seriously endangered without the dawn strikes. The secretary indicates there are policy considerations against airstrikes before the beachhead airfield is in the hands of the landing force and completely operational and capable of supporting the raids. Russ calls the president and tells him of the CIA men's objections, but he again restates to the president his own recommendation to cancel the strikes. The secretary offers to let Bissell and Cabell talk to the president directly, but they both decline. I don't think there's any point, Cabell tells Rusk. I think I agree with that, Bissell also says. Years later, in his memoirs, Bissell writes that he viewed the decision of Cabell's and his own as a major mistake. For the record, we should have spoken to the president and made as strong a case as possible on behalf of the operation and the welfare of the brigade. The order canceling the airstrikes is dispatched to the departure field in Nicaragua, but it's delayed for some reason, and it arrives in the hands of those in charge at Puerto Cabezas around 3 a.m., right at the moment when the pilots are in their cockpits, just about ready to take off. They would stand down, and they would stay at Puerto Cabezas. The Joint Chiefs of Staff learn of the cancellation at varying hours that morning of April 17th. Realizing the seriousness of the cancellation of those airstrikes, CIA officials try to offset the damage. They warn the invasion force of likely air attacks now and ask the ships to expedite unloading and to withdraw from the beach by dawn. A continuous cover of two B-26s over the beach is late in arriving. At about 4.30 in the morning, General Cabell, now furious over the decision, calls Dean Rusk, the Secretary of State, and talks with him at his home. And Cabell reiterates the need to protect the shipping by providing air cover, and he makes the request to the president as well by telephone. President Kennedy disapproves the request for air cover 
but he does authorize early warning destroyers, provided they stay at least 30 miles from Cuban territory. It was a wholly ineffective interim step. Backing the chronology time clock up slightly for just a second, at about midnight that night, zero hours on April 17th, the two LCIs, Blogger and Barbara J., and their two CIA operations officers on board, and the underwater teams of frogmen entered the Bay of Pigs, that is, the Bahia de Cachinos. And they did it along with Garcia's four merchant ships, the Houston, the Rio Escondido, the Carib, and the Atlantico, amongst them carrying the 1,400 or so Cuban exile ground troops of Brigade 2506 plus the brigade's M41 tanks and other vehicles in the landing craft inventory. Aboard the blogger, CIA agent Gray Lynch receives a message on a yellow pad from Washington. It says, Castro still has operational aircraft. Expect you to be hit at dawn. Unload all troops and supplies and take ships to sea as soon as possible. On learning that the invading troops will meet resistance in the landing area due to failure to destroy all of the Cuban Air Force, the blogger moves in close to shore and begins to deliver gunfire support. At about 1 o'clock in the morning, that is the morning of the 17th, the blogger, as the battlefield command ship, directed the principal landing at Playa Garan, codenamed Blue Beach. And as we said, it was led by the frogmen in rubber boats followed by troops from Carib in small aluminum boats, and then the LCVPs and the LCUs with the M41 tanks following as well. Similarly, the Barbara J, leading the Houston, landed troops about 35 kilometers or about 15 miles further northwest at Playa Larga, the second beach landing spot, and it was codenamed Red Beach. 270 men landed at Red Beach and immediately came under fire. And as a result, the landing of the 2nd Battalion at Red Beach was slowed by trouble with some of the landing craft motors and the use of aluminum boats, all of which was a function of the unforeseen issues related to navigating in the dark and across the coral reefs, which they initially believed from the mission planning were areas of seaweed. Those battalions in that time frame would only be able to use two of the nine boats for the short run from the Houston to the beach, and consequently, it would slow the offload dramatically. As the frogmen led the way, they were shocked to discover that Red Beach was lit with floodlights, which led to the exact location of the landing being (laughs) hastily changed. As the frogmen landed, a firefight broke out when a jeep carrying Cuban militia happened by. The few militia troops in the area succeeded in warning Cuban armed forces via radio soon after the first landing, but it didn't take long before the exile invaders overcame this initial token resistance from the militia. Back in Havana, Castro himself was awakened at about 3.15 a.m., and he was informed at that time of the landings, which led him to put all militia units in the area on the highest state of alert and to order airstrikes. Castro's troops planned to strike the Brigadistas first at Playa Larga as they were inland. 
The attack on the exiled troops that had landed at Garan along the sea and close to the airfield would come after from Castro's forces. After taking steps to ensure that Havana was safe and making the determination that the landings were primary and not a deception, El Comandante, Fidel Castro, departed personally to lead his forces into battle against the Brigadistas. Castro, in fact, had plenty enough air power at this point to move forward. And at daybreak, around 6.30, Castro sent several of his FARC Furies, one of his B-26 bombers, and two of his T-33 jets to begin the attack on the Cuban Expeditionary Force and the Exile Navy, otherwise called by me the Garcia Merchant Ships. These Garcia merchant ships were still unloading troops at this early hour due to the delays that I have just described. At about 6.50 a.m. south of Playa Largo, the Houston was hit and damaged by several bombs and rockets from one of Castro's Sea Fury planes and a T-33 jet. And about two hours later, Captain Lewis Morris intentionally beached the Houston on the western side of the bay. About 270 troops had been unloaded at the point when the ship was hit, and about another 180 survivors, who were not yet offloaded, struggled ashore, but were incapable of taking part in further action because these men had lost most of their weapons and equipment as they abandoned the ship. The loss of the Houston was significant for so many reasons including the fact that it was carrying a major component of the medical supplies for the mission, not to mention the arms that about half of the Cuban exiles that were on the boat were going to use. At about 7 o'clock a.m. on the 17th, two CIA FAL B-26s attacked and sank the Cuban Navy patrol escort ship El Bear at Nueva Garana on the island of Pines. They then proceeded to Garan to join two other B-26s, and the group of four B-26s then attacked Cuban ground troops that were already gathering, and their principal job that morning was to provide distraction and air cover for the paratroopers that were about to be dropped shortly, and to provide cover for the Garcia merchant ships under air attack already, since the Cuban Air Force had not been completely destroyed. The M-41 tanks of the Cuban Expeditionary Force had all landed by 7.30 a.m. at Blue Beach, at Garan, that is, and all of the troops were finally on Cuban soil by 8.30 a.m. that morning of the 17th. Pepe San Romain was the Cuban combat leader on the ground, and he was at Blue Beach, but neither San Romain at Blue Beach nor Ernesto Oliva who had landed with the troops at Red Beach and who was in command there, neither one of them could communicate as all of the radios had been soaked in the water during the landings. At about 7.30 a.m., about 30 minutes later, five C-46 and one C-54 transport aircraft dropped 177 paratroopers from the brigade's parachute battalion. The parachute drop was dubbed Operation Falcon. There were problems with the parachute drop, and some equipment was lost, among other things. 
There were five or so different locations where the drops took place, all strategically designed for men to be able to take control of the inland roads that ran north and south and that were the principal paths that Castro's troops would enter the area by. Securing these roads and locations would seal off the area, and also since these drops were behind enemy lines, so to speak, for those militia already there, it was a net thrown over and it was a trapping move against Castro's forces, the forces that had met and answered the first call for troops. Soon, if the plan worked, they would be joined by men and tanks at these forward positions men and tanks that had already landed south of them on the beaches at Garan. The paratroopers had landed amid a collection of militia, but Castro's ill-trained militia were no match for the paratroopers, and even though they were not concentrated, they were able to hold their areas, and a principal drop had occurred close to a nearby sugar mill that was a strategic gathering location for Castro's troops in the area. The exiled troops were not able to take the road leading to the sugar mill, and thus were not able to cut off one of the strategic entry points related to the flow of Castro's troops into the area. And of course, that allowed Castro to continue to send troops down this one path to resist the invasion. At about 8.30 a.m., one of Castro's Sea Furies crashed in the bay after encountering one of the Cuban Expeditionary Forces, C-46, that were returning south after the dropping of a load of the paratroopers. By 9 o'clock a.m., the Cuban troops and militia from outside the area had started arriving at the sugar mill and other locations, including Cavadanga and Yagaramas. Throughout the day, they were reinforced by more and more troops, heavy armor, and T-34 Soviet tanks typically carried on flatbed trucks. At about 9.30 a.m., more of Castro's Sea Furies and T-33s fired rockets at yet another ship, one of the Garcia merchant ships. This time, it was the Rio Escondido, which then blew up and sank, about three kilometers, or about 1.9 miles out at sea, south of Garan. The Rio Escondido was loaded with aviation fuel, and as the ship started to burn, the captain gave the order to abandon ship. It was a good thing he acted quickly, as it was only a short time after that that three explosions occurred on the ship, and it was completely destroyed. The Rio Escondido carried fuel along with enough ammunition, food, and medical supplies to last 10 days and it also carried the radio that allowed the brigade to communicate with the FAL, the Expeditionary Air Force. The loss of the communications ship Rio Escondido meant that Pepe San Romain, the brigadista commander on the beaches, was only able to issue orders to the forces where he was located, that is, at Blue Beach, and he had no idea of what was happening at Red Beach or in the air with the paratroopers. At Blue Beach, at the moment the Rio Escondido exploded, Rip Robertson shouted into the radio, God Almighty, what was that? Fidel got the A-bomb? Nah, responded his CIA colleague, Grayston Lynch. 
That was the damned Rio Escanito that just blew. A messenger from Red Beach arrived at about 10 o'clock a.m. asking Pepe San Romain to send tank and infantry to block the road from the sugar mill, a request that he agreed to. As I mentioned earlier, this was a critical step in stopping the influx of Castro's militia to the area, and the sugar mill had a large number of militia stationed there already at the outset of the battle, and it was only getting worse. At about 11 o'clock, Castro issued a statement over Cuba's nationwide network saying that the invaders were members of the exiled Cuban Revolutionary Front and that they had come to destroy the revolution and take away the dignity and rights of men. Castro's diatribe would continue throughout the battle. And about the same time, one of Castro's T-33s attacked and shot down an FAL B-26. The pilot survived a crash landing on the Garan airfield, but his navigator was already killed by gunfire. His companion B-26 suffered damage and diverted to Grand Cayman Island, where this plane, too, was impounded by the British authorities. Around this same time, the remaining Garcia merchant ships would radio the fleet and tell them that if air cover was not provided very shortly, they would head out to sea. And at about 11 o'clock a.m., the two remaining freighters, the Carib and the Atlantico, along with the LCIs and the LCUs, started retreating south to international waters. But Castro's planes did not stop when they reached international waters. They pursued the CEF ships beyond that point. And at about noon, one of those B-26s of Castro's that was in pursuit over international waters exploded from heavy anti-aircraft fire from the blogger. By noon, hundreds of Cuban militia cadets from Matanzas had secured Palpite and cautiously advanced on foot south towards Playa Larga, suffering many casualties during attacks as the FALB-26s swooped down to provide some cover for the exile forces. But by dusk, other Cuban ground forces gradually advanced southward from Covadonga and southwest from Yagarama toward the San Blas and westward along coastal tracks from Cienfuegos towards Garan, all without heavy weapons or armor. But even so, a large number of men converging like ants to a central point were on their way to making the kill. It was already beginning to look ominous for the Cuban expeditionary force, as the buildup of Castro's troops was beginning, but still the brigadistas fought valiantly, and for a moment they were winning some of the key skirmishes. One of those came at about 2.30 p.m. that afternoon on the 17th, when a group of Castro's militiamen from the 339th set up a position which came under attack from the Brigadista's M41 tanks. And the M41 tanks inflicted heavy losses on Castro's Cubans. This action is remembered in Cuba as the slaughter of the lost battalion, as most of the militiamen perished. Shortly thereafter, three FAL B-26s were shot down by Castro's swift-moving T-33 jets. Only one of the crew members was picked up, with the loss of three out of the six pilots and navigators on board. 
One other navigator was picked up by the USS Murray after the plane was ditched in the ocean. One B-26 diverted to Boca Chica in the Florida Keys. And late that night, the crew, anxious to get back again to battle, attempted to fly back to Puerto Cabezas. They were trying to do so in the other B-26 that had, as part of the initial bombing missions on April 15th, also been diverted and flown to Boca Chica. That B-26 never made it back to Puerto Cabezas. In October 1961, some six months after the Bay of Pigs invasion, the wreckage of that plane, along with the bodies of both members of the crew, were found in the dense jungle in Nicaragua. One more FALB-26 would go up, and it was diverted again to Grand Cayman with engine failure. <laughs> the British were getting used to the routine. Back in Washington, National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy reported to the president that the situation in Cuba was not good. The Cuban armed forces are stronger, the popular response is weaker, and our tactical position is feebler than we had hoped. Tanks have done in one beachhead, and the position is precarious at the others. Bundy informed Kennedy that the CIA is going to press hard for further air help against a formidable enemy. He recommends that air support be provided because, in my own judgment, the right course now is to eliminate the Castro Air Force by neutrally painted U.S. planes, if necessary, and then let the battle on the ground go its way. Back at Puerto Cabezas, only about a third of the Cuban pilots are now willing to continue flying, and Bissell, for the first time, authorizes American pilots to fly combat missions. Two CIA contract men, Peters and Sieg, joined by Cuban pilots, head for Cuba. Castro's troops mistake them for friendly aircraft, and instead of dispersing, they begin to cheer. The six brigade planes swoop down, dropping napalm and regular bombs, firing rockets, and inflicting what is claimed as 1,800 Cuban casualties, and while also destroying seven of Castro's tanks. It would become the largest single event causing loss of life during the Bay of Pigs. About 4 or 5 p.m. that afternoon, the Joint Chiefs of Staff direct the command to prepare unmarked naval planes for a possible combat use following a call from Admiral Burke at the White House. This message from Burke would make it clear that this is preparatory. But there is no intention at this time of U.S. intervention. The aircraft are readied, but permission is never given to use them. The aircraft carrier Essex around this time reported a long line of tanks and trucks approaching Blue Beach from the east. And all of this was happening as the ammunition supplies were dwindling to dangerous levels given the disasters that had occurred with the Rio Escondido and the Houston. In spite of heavy fighting, though, the casualties appeared to be relatively few at this point among the Brigadistas. At the end of the evening, the CIA headquarters, via a message from the blogger, asks the brigade commander, Pepe San Romain, if he wished to be evacuated. To that, Pepe San Romain replied, I will not be evacuated. We will fight to the end here if we have to.
That night, at the annual congressional reception, Robert Kennedy takes aside Senator Smathers of Florida and tells him, the shit has hit the fan. The thing has turned sour in a way you wouldn't believe. At 7.15 p.m., the Cuban Revolutionary Council issues a press bulletin. The bulletin quotes a council spokesman as predicting that before dawn, the island of Cuba will rise up en masse in a coordinated wave of sabotage and rebellion that will sweep communism from their country. This bulletin complemented a previous bulletin issued by the Revolutionary Council on D-Day, one that claimed that information they were receiving from Cuba indicated that much of the militia in the countryside had already defected from Castro. Of course, neither of these two communiques were true. By 4 o'clock, Castro had arrived at the Central Australia Sugar Mill, the sugar mill I mentioned earlier, and he joined Jose Ramon Fernandez, whom he had appointed as battlefield commander before dawn that day. At about 5 o'clock, a night airstrike by three FALB-26s on San Antonio de los Banos airfield failed, reportedly because of incompetence and bad weather. It was the last futile attempt to locate the rest of Castro's air force and destroy it, a function of the frantic orders from Washington that occurred after the U-2 pictures were more fully analyzed and the true condition of Castro's Air Force was assessed and determined. Two other FALB-26s had aborted the mission after takeoff from Puerto Cabezas. Some sources allege that heavy anti-aircraft fire scared the Cuban exile air crews. Things were getting pretty dicey with the Cuban pilots. As night fell on April 17th, the first day of the invasion, the Atlantico and the Carib pulled away from Cuba to be followed by Blogger and Barbara J. These ships were to return to the Bay of Pigs the following day to unload more ammunition. However, the captains of the Atlantico and Carib decided to abandon the invasion and head out to open sea, fearing further air attacks by Castro's Air Force. In a stunning move, destroyers from the U.S. Navy intercepted the Atlantico about 110 miles south of Cuba and persuaded the captain to return. But the Carib was, by that time, already some 218 miles away from Cuba. And by the time she was persuaded and then able to return, it was too late. Late that night of April 17th and into the early morning hours of the 18th, the force at Red Beach came under repeated counterattacks from Castro's army and militia. As casualties mounted and ammunition was used up, the brigadistas steadily began to give way. Airdrops would continue from four C-54s and two C-46s, but they had only limited success in landing more ammunition. Both the blogger and Barbara J. returned at midnight that night to land more ammunition, which proved insufficient for the brigadistas. Following desperate appeals for help from Oliva, Pepe San Romain ordered all of his M41 tanks to assist in the defense. During the night fighting, a tank battle broke out when the brigadista M41 tanks 
clashed with the T-34 tanks of the Cuban army. These actions were now working against the exile forces, and it pushed back the Brigadistas, but they stayed at it, and they fought valiantly throughout the night. For a moment, it seemed like there might be a rally from the Brigadistas. At 10 o'clock p.m., the Cuban army opened fire with 76 and 122-millimeter artillery guns, sending shells onto Playa Larga. And that was followed by a T-34 tank at about midnight. Maybe it was inexperienced by the militia or good soldiering by the brigadistas, but the 2,000 artillery rounds fired by the Cuban army had mostly missed the brigadista defense positions. And Castro's T-34 tanks rode into an ambush when they came under fire from the brigadista M-41 tanks in mortar fire. And a number of T-34 tanks were then destroyed or knocked out. At 1 o'clock a.m., early in the morning of the 18th, Castro's army infantrymen and militiamen smelled blood in the water and started another offensive. Despite heavy losses on the part of the Cuban forces, the shortage of ammunition forced the Brigadistas back, and the T-34 tanks continued to force their way forward past the wreckage of the battlefield to press on in the assault. At this point, the Castro forces actively involved in the assault numbered about 2,100 men, consisting of about 300 FAR soldiers, 1,600 militiamen, and about 200 local policemen, supported by at least 20 T-34 tanks. All that to face off with, at times, sometimes only three or 400 brigadistas in a location. By 5 o'clock a.m. on the 18th, Oliva started to order his men to retreat as he had almost no ammunition or mortar rounds left. By about 10.30 a.m. on the 18th, Cuban troops and militia, supported by the T-34 tanks, took Playa Larga after brigade forces had fled back towards Garan in the early morning hours. As the men from Red Beach arrived at Garan, Pepe San Romain and Oliva Oneda met to discuss the situation. With ammunition running low, Oliva suggested that the brigade retreat into the Escambre Mountains to wage guerrilla warfare. But Pepe San Romain made the final call, and he decided that they would not run. They would try and hold the beachhead. At about 11 o'clock a.m., Castro's army began an offensive to take San Blas. Pepe San Romain ordered all of the paratroopers back in order to hold San Blas, and they halted the offensive. During the afternoon, Castro kept the brigadistas under steady air attack and artillery fire, but he didn't order any new major attacks. At this moment, the skies were owned by Castro and his gimpy handful of crappy planes. All of this was happening when A-4s stood down on the Essex, just waiting to be placed into action. Responding to the ease with which the T-33 jets were able to destroy the B-26 bombers, CIA leaders issued orders to bomb, using fragmentation bombs, as many airfields as possible on the night of April 17th and 18th. Three B-26s were launched for just this purpose, but they all failed to find their targets. A few hours later, at about 2 o'clock p.m. on the 18th, President Kennedy received a message 
from Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. It would read this, It is not a secret to anyone that the armed bands which invaded that country have been trained, equipped, and armed in the United States of America. The planes which bomb Cuban cities belong to the United States of America. The bombs they drop have been made available by the American government. As to the Soviet Union, there should be no misunderstanding of our position. We shall render the Cuban people and the government all necessary assistance in beating back the armed attack on Cuba. We are sincerely interested in a relaxation of international tension, but if others aggravate it, we shall reply in full measure. Kennedy responded to that by saying that the United States intends no military intervention in Cuba, but should an outside force intervene, we will immediately honor our obligations under the inter-American system to protect this hemisphere against external aggression. On April 19th, at a meeting at the White House that begins just after midnight, the President, the Vice President Johnson, McNamara, and Rusk, all in white tie with General Lemnitzer and Admiral Burke in dress uniform, hear a report on the decline of the invasion force. Burke asks the President to let me take two jets and shoot down the enemy aircraft. The President says no, reminding Bissell and Burke that he has warned them over and over again that he would not commit U.S. forces to combat. Around 1 o'clock a.m., the President is persuaded, though, to make a compromise, and he then authorizes one hour of air cover from 6.30 to 7.30 that morning for the invading brigades to be provided by six unmarked jets from the carrier Essex. The jets are not to seek air combat nor attack ground targets. By the morning of April the 19th, nine of the invading forces, 16 B-26s, have been shot down, and several more of the remaining planes are in poor flying condition. The U.S. Navy Combat Air Patrol and the B-26s failed a rendezvous because the CIA and the Pentagon failed to realize a time zone difference between Nicaragua and Cuba. As a result, two B-26s that got to the beaches earlier shot down and four other Americans are lost. Americans who volunteered for those flights, men from the Alabama National Guard, men who were so invested in training those Cuban pilots about the only men left in the United States that really knew how to take care of and run and operate B-26s, which is why they had that fate in life, were men that just couldn't let it go. They were told that if they flew the mission, because they were Americans, if they were shot down, there would be a complete denial of their involvement. And that is, in fact, what happened. A C-46 carrying 850 pounds of rockets and ammunition, maps, messages, and communications equipment lands on the Garan airstrip. After dropping off equipment and picking up messages, maps, and a wounded pilot who had been shot down earlier in the mission, plane flies back to Puerto Cabezas, Nicaragua. At about 6 o'clock in the morning, more Cuban airstrikes begin. The blogger is due to arrive at Blue Beach escorting three LCUs that will be delivering more ammunition. During the night, however, the captain reports to CIA headquarters that if low jet cover is not provided, 
He believes all ships will be lost. Prior to this time, he has requested a U.S. Navy destroyer as an escort. The CIA headquarters wires back that a destroyer escort is not possible. And the captain replies that if he cannot get a destroyer escort in and out of Blue Beach, his Cuban crew will mutiny. The CIA headquarters directs the ammunition ships to stop northern movement and to rendezvous some 60 miles south of the Cuban coast. Beyond an arrangement for another airdrop, no further effort is made to get the men on the beaches more ammunition before the final surrender. It was the beginning of the end. As Castro's troops close in on the invasion force at Blue Beach with tanks and infantry in coordination with air attacks. At 5 o'clock a.m., Pepe San Romain, leader of the invading forces, radios, you don't know how desperate our situation is. All we need is strong air protection. If not, we don't survive. At about 7.12 a.m. that morning, San Romain radios to Nicaragua that enemy forces and trucks are just three miles away from Playa Garan. At about 8.15 a.m., San Romain radios to Nicaragua. Situation desperate on the west flank. We need urgent air support. A few minutes after that, he radios that Playa Garan is under air attack. It was coming all over now. Alejandro de Valle sends a message to San Romain. We are under strong military attack here in San Blas, and we are retreating about two kilometers. At 9.25 a.m., Pepe San Romain radios that 2,000 troops are attacking Garan from the east and the west, and he calls for urgent air support. But again, none would come. The advance by Castro's troops continues inch by inch, and around noon, artillery fire is launched against the defensive positions of the Brigadistas. The siege around the invaders is tightened to prevent any escape by land. They came with a Fuhrer, and around 9.30 that morning, Pepe San Romain would report that the Fury would consist of a force that he could not overcome. He would plead for air support immediately. By 10 o'clock a.m., Castro's troops enter San Blas, and by 11, they are approaching the last defenses blocking the road to Garan. It is almost the end now. Back in Washington, the Joint Chiefs of Staff direct the command to send two destroyers to a position off Blue Beach for the possibility of evacuating troops, despite the heroics being shown by Pepe and his troops earlier. About an hour later, around 1 o'clock, based on a call from Admiral Burke from the White House, the Joint Chiefs of Staff go ahead and they direct the command to have destroyers take the Cuban Expeditionary Force off the beach and from the water to the extent they can. But by this time, it's just too late. At 3.30 p.m., Cuban planes bombard the zone of Garan, and Castro's troops would use artillery to attack the boats, trying to evacuate the brigadistas, forcing them back away from the beach. After about 20 or 30 minutes of fire, the destroyers from which the evacuation boats are coming would push out to sea and sail away. In anger and frustration, the brigadistas fire on their own comrades, fleeing in boats. 
and they fire on the destroyers from a tank. By late afternoon, Castro's forces entered Garan without encountering any organized resistance. The fight was over. The last message from Pepe that is received by the blogger reads, Am destroying all equipment and communications. I have nothing left to fight with. Am taking to the woods. I can't wait for you. That night, around 9 p.m., the Cuban Revolutionary Council would issue its sixth and final bulletin claiming that the recent landings in Cuba have been constantly and inaccurately described as an invasion. It was, in fact, a landing of supplies and support for our patriots who have been fighting in Cuba for months. Today's action allowed the major portion of our landing party to reach the Escambre Mountains. Back in Washington, Alan Dulles met with former Vice President Richard Nixon, and he would tell him, everything is lost. The Cuban invasion is a total failure. Dulles would blame the loss on soft liners in the Kennedy administration who doomed the operation to failure by last-minute compromises. At the United Nations, Cuban Minister Roa states that Cuban anti-aircraft batteries have shot down a U.S. plane piloted by an American airman that morning. Communique number 4 from Fidel Castro would be issued, and it would inform the Cuban people that Playa Garan, which was the last bastion held by the Brigadistas, fell at 5.30 in the afternoon. The fight was over, and the Brigadistas had suffered a crushing defeat. After three days of fighting, the Brigadistas would suffer 89 men dead, and another 1,197 were taken prisoner. About 200 men in total had been evacuated from the beaches. The toll for Castro's fighting force would be much higher. Shortly thereafter, the task began in earnest by Castro's troops to capture the Brigadistas, who by this time had fled into the surrounding areas and into the marsh along the coast. As these prisoners were captured, Castro would personally interrogate over 50 of them. It was a sweet moment for the maximum commander, and an equally sullen one for the United States and the counter-revolutionaries. Manuel Artema, one of the leaders of Brigade 2506, was able to elude Castro's troops and remain on the run until May 2nd, some two weeks after the end of the fighting. Artema was finally captured near Cavadanga in the Zapata Swamp, along with 21 other members of the exile force. He and Pepe San Romain and Ernesto Aveda would join almost 1,200 other men for the next 18 months in the same Cuban prison that had seen the likes of Fidel Castro. And they would exist in torrid conditions until their release and transport back to the United States on Christmas Eve. 1962, after payment of a $53 million ransom. In the end, the air campaign had been decisive. In one sense, it was won by Castro's Air Force, but in another, you could easily say, we gave it away by the foolhardy decisions that were made. By the time the fighting had ceased, 10 Cuban pilots had flown a total of 70 missions, bringing down nine B-26 planes and sinking two 5,000-ton merchant ships that carried essential supplies and munitions. And there was more damage than just that. 
They would also sink one communication boat, three landing craft for transporting equipment, and five landing craft for transporting troops, all over a four-day period from April 17th to April 20th. Yes, life truly is a game of inches. Either play to win, or you're likely to lose. Thank you for listening to episode 147 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Stick with us and listen to the next episode, a bonus episode 148, where we provide an epilogue of sorts for Pepe San Romain, and also for the men of the Alabama National Guard that were killed in the line of duty in the Bay of Pigs.